Let's turn ourselves this morning to consider the gospel of Jesus Christ in the book of Amos. Because if we can't come to the gospel in the midst of this prophet, then we have failed in our endeavor to appropriately approach the text. Man, if we can't come to the place where we... I mean, Jesus himself said, you search these scriptures because you think in them is life. They speak about me. If we can't come to the gospel in places like Amos, then we have mishandled the text. Amos saw a word. He didn't hear a word. He didn't simply receive a word. He saw a word. And the only way you can see a word is when the word is a person. And so in Amos chapter 1 and verse 1, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And the word that Amos saw was a word of impending Judgment. As a matter of fact, the word that Amos saw was nothing less than the Lord himself, nothing less than God Almighty roaring forth from Zion. And he said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, the pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. There is no way to get around it. The gospel that you see presented in the book of Amos is a gospel that is primarily fixated on the judgment of a holy God. No way to get around it. I think it's a message that is particularly timely for the circumstances in which we live today. Man, judgment's going to fall. This is a big kid book. You, you, you don't get a lot of helps along the way in Amos. You get a statement of hope at the very end that is very truncated. <laughs> and it's the kind of statement that you can really only hang your coat on if you absolutely positively believe that God is so faithful to his word that he doesn't have to rattle his head over and over and over to make what he says be true, once is enough. <laughs> once is enough. Judgment's going to fall. And while the focus is on judgment coming to the people of God, that is not where it begins. In Amos chapter 1, verse 3, and I don't know how we're going to deal with this yet. I was talking to Jim just earlier about this. I don't know how we're going to approach this section of text 
other than to say today we'll get started. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. And so I will send fire upon the house of Hazael, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. And I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Aven, and him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Ker, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. And so I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza and it shall devour her strongholds and I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron And the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. And so I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre and it shall devour her strongholds. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. And so I will send a fire upon Timon and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind and their king shall go into exile. He and his princes together, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send a fire upon Moab and it shall devour the strongholds of Kerioth and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet. And I will cut off the ruler from his midst and will kill all its princes with him says the Lord. And he is just getting started. As a matter of fact, what he breaks down here very quickly will be expanded into eight chapters when it concerns his people. These are simply the ones that aren't his, that he speaks about their judgment almost as it were passing. The reality is, is the judgment of the Lord knows no favor. In Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4, 
The Lord will say to the prophet, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. It's not an Old Testament concept. It's a holy concept. Paul speaks similarly in the book of Romans in chapter 6, verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want you to understand that when the book of Amos was written, they were as close to the exodus on one end as they were to the cross on the other. You need to get the... And look, I don't know what we're going to do with this because I don't know how to approach it. I, I don't intend Amos to take three years, but the reality is is that if we go back and do every one of these and do the historical background on each one of these statements about Tyre and about Basra and about God, if we go back and do all of this stuff, it's going to take a while. These people were as close, they they are sitting at the halfway point between the Exodus and the cross. They're familiar with what happened. They understand from a very personal national reality what the judgment of God looks like. Flip back with me, if you will, to Exodus chapter 11. And guys, just like it was last week, we're just, man, all of this stuff is big narrative and we're just going to have to read some. In Exodus chapter 11, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. And afterward, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. And so Moses said, thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all of the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been before, nor ever will be again. Not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Now hang on to that. Hang on to that statement that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. You say, now hang on, preacher, you just quoted out of Ezekiel and Romans, bookended it on purpose, that says God shows no partiality. And yet here he is, showing partiality drawing the line between Egypt and Israel. Hold on to it. Tension is good. 
And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. And then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. What an incredibly powerful statement. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. If the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight, and then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it. In the month that will be the beginning of months for you, In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And the blood... shall be a sign for you. Not, it won't be a sign for the angel. It'll be a sign for you. On the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Okay. Way too much here to exegete. So let's just hit the critical points at the moment. Okay, first of all, this deal is terrifying. Amen? <laughs> terrifying. What is coming upon the land of Egypt that night is the only judgment that God brings, and that is a blanket judgment that is based off of his own holy righteousness. Here's the standard. God says, here's the standard, and the standard's him. And I'm going to uphold that standard, 
And who I'm going to uphold it for on this particular evening is the firstborn. Now, if you look at the Hebrew, the first time he says it, when he speaks about the cattle, a little bit of a loose translation, livestock, the second time he says, every man and every beast. I mean, we're talking everything from the firstborn male child of the squirrel that lives in my oak tree outside my bedroom window and chatters at me in the morning to the firstborn of the lizard that scurries along my path to the firstborn of Pharaoh that sits on the throne. Absolute. Paul will say in Romans chapter 2, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Why? Because God shows no partiality. That's the quote. For God shows no partiality. And so here he is, seemingly a self-contradiction. Showing no partiality, man, I will judge every firstborn male. Buddy, if you're the firstborn male, I'm one. A bunch of you in here are. This is you. He says, man, don't even open the door. Belt sucked up tight around your waist, your sandals on your feet. Eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. And in the midst of showing no partiality, man, there's partiality everywhere you look. There's lambs that are being slaughtered. There is blood on the posts and on the lentils. And when up, whatever it is outside, whatever the manifestation of the holiness of the Lord Himself looks like, it is passing over them that it may be seen that God sees a difference between Egypt and Israel. Guys, let me tell you something. God doesn't show partiality. What he shows is miracle. That's what he shows. In Exodus chapter 34, it says the Lord descended in a cloud and he stood there with him. Speaking of this very prophet, speaking of Moses himself, he stood there with him. Amos isn't the only one that saw a word. That he stood there with him and he proclaimed the name of the Lord and the Lord passed before him and he proclaimed. Here's, I mean, you want to know what God's character is. Here it is. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. 
Now look, what concerns me about where we find ourselves as the people of God today is that when we read that, we often want to begin to contend with God about the nature of His character. How is it? How is it that you will by no means clear the guilty and at the same time forgive iniquity and transgression and sin, which by definition... Iniquity and sin that create the transgression of the law is the very thing that makes you guilty. How do you do that? Man, when Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them is eternal life, he wasn't disagreeing with them. What he was saying was that that thing speaks about me. Exodus chapter 34, verse 5 through 8, is the gospel. Either that or God's schizophrenic, one of the two. Those are the two options that we have. Man, he looks straight at Moses and he says, look, here's the deal, buddy. I will by no means pardon the guilty. Man, I forgive iniquity and sin and transgression. You know what Moses does? Moses quickly. Now, the Hebrew doesn't throw around a lot of adverbs. (laughs) The fact that when it says that he quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped is significant. How much did Moses understand? I don't know. But he understood enough to get the fact that if this is a God who by no means acquits the guilty and yet forgives iniquity, sin, and transgression, there must be some means by which he does that. And that means is worthy of a response of rapid worship. (laughs) Rapid worship. They were as close to the exodus as they were to the cross. An exodus that proclaimed the cross and proclaimed the gospel. And here at the beginning of the book of Amos, before the Lord turns his judgment towards his people, he speaks of nations, of Gentiles, like me and you. People that are a whole lot more like Egypt and the good old U.S. of A. than they are like Israel that he drew a distinction between. This morning, like I said, there's a lot here. And we don't have time to do the historical background on all of it. This morning I want to focus primarily on Tyre. Because I think it's the most significant. Verse 9, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four I will not revoke the punishment. Because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood 
So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall devour her strongholds. Tyre did something. They delivered up a people to Edom, and Edom's judgment's coming, but it's not here yet. And they delivered up a whole people to Edom, but they did that for a reason. They forgot something. They forgot the covenant of brotherhood. Look with me, if you will, in 2 Samuel. So if, um, if, if you have a kid that is in the third and fourth grade class, they should be able to tell you um, that uh, 2 Samuel falls under a group of scripture that we are um, calling the Wild Wild West. And so this is, this is the period in Israel's history. Instead of cowboys and Indians, it's Israelites and Canaanites. And this is the frontier, okay, when they're pushing into the land. And here in 2 Samuel in chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, it says that all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd to my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. And so all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. And David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. And at Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all of Israel and Judah 33 years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David can't come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion that is in the city of David, and David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. That water shaft is still there. You can climb up it today. Therefore, it is said, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the Milo inward, and David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and cedar trees, and also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. This is the first mention in the kingdom proper of a foreign power coming alongside Israel in what God was doing with them. But David's relationship with Hiram the king of Tyre does not stop there. It continues. It continues all the way through his reign and into the reign of his son. Now, I know when you think about a cedar tree here in Arkansas, you think about the kind we've got out back behind the church here. That is not the kind of cedars that we are talking about. You, they're not the same thing, but you need to have in your mind more like giant sequoia. These things were so big 
that later, when Hiram will send cedar for the temple proper, they are so large that the entire wall of the east and west side of the building from floor to ceiling is one cut. Just one. It's one board. How you get that thing not to crack? No idea. His relationship continues in Second King or in First Kings in chapter one or five, verses one through twelve. In First Kings chapter five, it says, "Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon." when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram always loved David. This is not just a political alliance. This is an understanding between the hearts of two kings. Hiram honors the legacy that he had with David by honoring his son. Hiram always loved David. And Solomon sent word to Hiram, You know that David my father could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God as the Lord said to David my father, Your son whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. Now, therefore, command that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me, and my servants will join your servants, and I will pay you for your servants such wages as you set, for you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. As soon as Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly. Now look, guys. Here's a guy that loved David, and he loved him so much that the opportunity to serve his son's kingdom caused him to immediately rejoice. Immediate response. He rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day who has given to David a wise son to be over his great people. And Hiram sent to Solomon saying, I have heard the message that you have sent to me. I am ready to do all you desire in the matter of cedar and cypress timber. My servant shall bring it down from the, to, the, to the sea from Lebanon, and I will make it into rafts to go by sea to the place you direct. And I will have them broken up there, and you shall receive it. And you shall meet my wishes by providing food for my household. And so Hiram supplied Solomon with all the timber of cedar and cypress that he desired, while Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat, his food for his household, and 20,000 cores of beaten oil. Solomon gave this to Hiram year by year, and the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him. There was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. They literally made a covenant. Man, if you look outside of the kingdom of Israel itself, 
at the kings that were around them in their golden age, Hiram was the man. Tyre was the kingdom. They stood with the people of God. They were in covenant with the people of God. Right up to the moment that they weren't. And when they forgot, they forgot hard. Once again, in the book of Amos, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. They didn't remember. They didn't remember the covenant they made. They didn't remember the God of the people whom they made it with. And because of that, destruction will come, and not just any destruction. The fall of Tyre is so dramatic... The swing is so great in forgetting the covenant that they had made of brotherhood with the household of David that they will be used by the Holy Spirit speaking to the prophet Ezekiel. They will be used as the archetype of the fall of Satan himself. Ezekiel chapter 28. In Ezekiel chapter 28 and verses 1 through 10, we see the prophecy concerning the prince of Tyre. This is the human, this is the earthly prince, Hiram's progeny that sits on the throne. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud, and, I, and, and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of the gods, in the heart of the seas, and yet you are but a man and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. You're indeed wiser than Daniel. No secret is hidden from you by your wisdom. In your understanding, you have made wealth for yourself. You have gathered gold and silver into your treasuries by your great wisdom in your trade. You have increased your wealth and your heart has become proud in your wealth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you make your heart like the heart of a God, therefore, behold, I will bring foreigners upon you, the most ruthless of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. And they shall thrust you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the seas. Will you still say, I am a God in the presence of those who kill you, though you are but a man and no God in the hands of those who slay you? You shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of foreigners, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. That is the statement to the prince of Tyre, a dude just like you and me. But so hard was their fall 
in forgetting the covenant of brotherhood with David and the house of David, which according to the flesh is the house of Christ, that the Holy Spirit will use them as a picture of what Satan himself looked like when he fell. In verse 11, Ezekiel shifts gears. He's no longer talking about a king who thinks he's a god but is just a man. Instead, he's talking about a cherub that thinks he's a god when he's really just a cherub. Moreover, much more so, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre. And say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the very garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardis and topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, emerald and carbuncle. Crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings on the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I place you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. And so I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you. And I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you and you have become to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. All because they forgot the covenant. Mount Zion, we talk about being a covenant people. We talk about covenant membership. We talk about covenant marriage. It is of critical importance. Man, these people were in as tight with the house of David as you could possibly get. And because they forgot the covenant of brotherhood, they end up being the example for what Satan looks like when he falls. Don't forget. Don't forget.
there were things about the covenant that would make things difficult for Hiram. There always is. You know, in, in studying Amos and, and, and looking at the word of the Lord that he saw that comes to these people, it is very easy to look around. I mean, hey, we're going to. We have to. If we're going to move through the scripture, we have to be able to understand that the reality is, is that God judges nations, not just individuals. And oftentimes there are righteous people within that nation on which the judgment splatters on. That's just true. You don't believe it? Ask anybody that lived through the Great Depression. They'll tell you about it. There's fewer and fewer of them around all the time. But they'll tell you about it. They'll tell you about people that were righteous in their endeavors, that made no mistakes that would relate directly to the hardship that came on them, and yet it was around them nonetheless. And so... As we look at what's going on in Amos, I don't want to get goofy because, man, there is some goofy exegetical stuff with minor prophets out there where people want to draw lines that are way too direct between the United States and Israel. Friends, we're not Israel. We're a lot closer to being Egypt or Tyre. We don't have as a nation that promise. Me and you have the promise as individuals. But as a nation, he never guaranteed the United States of America anything. So I don't want to get goofy. But here's what's clear. The reason that Tyre found themselves in the position that they found themselves in was because they forgot the covenant. Guard it. Protect it. Bleed for it. don't forget it for as we looked last week this covenant is nothing less than the covenant of Jesus Christ himself that saves us from our sin man this is Acts chapter 15 verses 12 through 18 I love it love the fact James could have pulled from any prophet he wanted to pull from and he goes with Amos when talking about the fact that salvation has come to the Gentiles, he picks a book that literally has one verse of hope in it. <laughs> Just one. And i got to think that he picks it because he's satisfied with knowing that God only has to say it once. <laughs> and that's enough. All the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his own name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, plural. He's going to grab a proof text. Right from a prophet, Amos, just as it is written, after this I will return, 
and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. The reality is, is that Hiram and Tyre may have forgotten the covenant that they had with the house of David, but God didn't forget the covenant that he had with his people, whether Jew or Gentile. But instead was pleased that through some very difficult events, salvation might come to Gentiles like you and me. Don't forget Don't forget the covenant of brotherhood. The reason we have it is because we have been bound to the blood and conformed to the image of a singular individual in Jesus Christ. And because I'm bound to that image and you're bound to that image therefore we have a covenant with each other we have a covenant with each other that is so absolute that you can write a whole book about judgment and put one verse at the end about salvation and it is the gospel don't forget And this is the covenant that we preach to the lost. That goes, let me tell you something. There is a God who by no means acquits the guilty and yet forgives sin and iniquity and trespass. There is a God who has no partiality and yet by miracle draws a line between his people and everybody else and is willing to use the blood of his own son in order to draw it. This is the gospel that we preach to the lost. This is the gospel that we preach to the saved. And we want to pray. We pray every week in third and fourth grade. We pray for salvation. We pray for sanctification. Make us look like you. Let us be the contradiction. Let us be the Gentile that is Hebrew. Let us be the guilty that are forgiven. This is the covenant of brotherhood. Man, if you don't have it, come to it. Come to it. If you do, hang on to it. Don't forget. Don't forget. No matter what. May the Lord bless you. May may glorify himself in his covenant people may he keep you may he vindicate his name in you
Amen.